Father, I pray that you might grant a measure of the power of your spirit upon your truth, upon your word, to reveal yourself to us and help us to see you for who you are. Lord, take the blinders off. Remove the scales from our eyes, Lord, so that we can see clearly who our great God and Savior is. And help me, Lord. Help me just to be a tool that you can use today to minister to your sheep. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, open up to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 to 4 today. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also ourselves Forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now we've just finished a little mini-series on probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. But next to John 3.16, I believe that the prayer we're going to start to study today is probably the next most well-known passage in all of the Bible. You probably can say it by heart. Most people can. We call it the Our Father Prayer. But really that's a misnomer. We, we call it also the Lord's Prayer. But this is the one prayer that Jesus could never have prayed because he could never have prayed, Father, forgive us our sins, for Jesus had no sins to confess or to be forgiven of. So really, I think a better name for this prayer would be the Lord's Model Prayer. This is a prayer that the Lord gave as a model to teach his disciples how to pray. Now, notice the occasion on which he gave the prayer. Verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples to pray. So one of Jesus' disciples was hearing the Lord and viewing the Lord in his prayer life. And you've got to know that the prayer life of Jesus must have just been an amazing thing to witness by his disciples. And I find it interesting that the disciples never asked Jesus... Lord, teach us to preach, or teach us to heal, or teach us to cast out demons, or teach us to walk on water, or multiply fish and loaves. The one thing they did ask him to teach him to do was to pray. And I think they intuitively understood that the power for Jesus' preaching and teaching and miracles and healing stemmed from his devotional life, his relationship with his Father, his prayer life. Without Jesus' prayer life, Jesus would have had no power. Because it came from his Father, by the Spirit, through him to other people. And so there's the occasion. Notice also the context. The context goes back to this little story that we looked at about six weeks ago. When Jesus came to Mary's home, and Mary was busily serving all the people there. I'm sorry, Martha, you're right. Martha was the one doing all this busy service. Mary was the one that was sitting there at the feet of Jesus, hearing his word. And Martha was getting so frustrated and so bothered, and Jesus turned to her and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Really, only one thing is necessary. 
Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. So the one thing necessary for the disciple of Jesus is to sit at his feet, drink in his word, and we find from chapter 11, the next component to that is then to speak back to the Lord in conversation, in communion, the things that are on our heart. So it's hearing him speak to us and then speak back to him through prayer. Now, when we come to Luke chapter 11, did you notice when we read through that that it sounds a little bit different from the Lord's Prayer that you've heard before? That's because there's two versions of it. There's one in Matthew chapter 6, and then there's this version in Luke chapter 11. And Luke's version is an abbreviated form of the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6. Luke doesn't include the words in heaven, just says Father. It doesn't say Father who is in heaven. And it also doesn't include the words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it doesn't include that doxology at the end that goes, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Luke's is shorter and it's more abbreviated. So why would this happen? Why would the Lord give us two different versions of the very same prayer? We know it's the same prayer because all the essential elements are there. Luke just doesn't include everything that Matthew does. Well, we discover as we look at the context for each one of the settings, Matthew 6, the context there, is different from Luke chapter 11. I believe that Jesus gave this prayer on more than one occasion. In Matthew, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's a response to one of his disciples saying, teach us how to pray. So two different occasions. Now, you, you got to know that... <laughs> Traveling preachers, itinerant preachers, often repeat their sermons. It was said of the great evangelist George Whitfield that he preached on the text, you must be born again over 300 times in his lifetime. So it was something he just repeated a lot. Well, I think Jesus repeated some of his most popular and favorite teachings on more than one occasion, and I think that's probably the case here. Now, it says in verse 2, when you pray, say. Say. In Matthew's version, it says, um, pray then in this manner. So when we hear Jesus in Matthew 6, it sounds like he's saying, you're not to pray verbatim, word for word, this prayer, but you're to pray in this manner, along these lines. Let this be a pattern or a model for your prayer. I believe that's really what Jesus intends here in Luke as well. Now think about this with me. If Jesus wanted us to repeat a certain prayer word for word, wouldn't he have given it to us exactly the same every time he taught it? Otherwise, we're going to get confused about, well, what prayer do we pray? What words are we supposed to be reciting? So I, I believe that the Lord's intention in giving us a prayer was not to have us repeat it word for word verbatim over and over, but he's trying to teach us who we are to pray to and what we're to pray about. Those are the two issues here. Who we are to address in prayer and what kinds of petitions we should be bringing to the Lord as we pray. I kind of find it kind of funny that the verse right before the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is the verse that Jesus says, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they're going to be heard for their many words. And this prayer has become the source of so many meaningless, repetitious words. <laughs> I know it was for me. 
I grew up as a good Catholic boy, and I would go to confession, I'd go behind that, that drape, and I would tell the priest my sins, and he would say, okay, your penance is to say so many Hail Marys and so many Our Fathers. So what would I do? I'd run to that altar, get down on my knees, and say them as fast as I could, so I could get out of that church <laughs> and go and do what I wanted to do. Meaningless repetitions. Meaningless repetition. The Lord doesn't want this prayer to be meaningless. He wants it to be full of meaning. He wants to instruct us through this prayer. Now, I also really love the fact that this prayer is so simple. In Matthew's version, there's 68 words. In Luke's version, there's 37 words. You can repeat it in about 20 seconds. And what we often do is we complicate things that the Lord wants to be very simple. You know, prayer is a very simple thing. Prayer is talking to God. Talking to God. And Jesus makes it sound so simple in this prayer, doesn't he? It's just talking to your Father about the things that concern you. His interests and your interests. Now, as you work your way through this prayer, you find that our relationship changes seven different times. Our Father who art in heaven, there's the relationship of the child to his father. Hallowed be your name. Now the relationship is the worshiper to his deity. Your kingdom come. Now it's the citizen addressing his king. Your will be done. Now it's the servant talking to his master. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. The beggar's talking to his benefactor. Forgive us our sins. The sinner is talking to his savior. And then we have, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There we have the pilgrim talking to his guide. All the way through, we find a shifting, subtle shifting of our relationship to this great God in heaven. Now, if you were to outline this prayer, you'd find it comes in three parts. First, the person that we address in prayer, our Father, who is in heaven, and that's followed by six petitions. Three of them concern God's interests, God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And then three of them concern our interests, our physical needs, our fellowship with God, and our walk of personal holiness. Now this morning, we're only going to take the very first one. All I want to talk to you about is the first six words of this prayer. Our Father, and we're going to be adding the words from Matthew to round this out and to give it fullness. Our Father who is in heaven. That's all I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about God today. I want to talk to you about the God that Jesus revealed to his disciples. First of all, the first two words. Our Father. God is the intimately familiar one. He's the intimately familiar one. He's our Father. Take that first word, our. He's our Father. Don't you find it interesting that Jesus didn't teach his disciples to pray, my Father who is in heaven. He says, pray this way, our Father. You know, I think there's a spirit that we all have because we are born and raised here in America that if you were to go to some third world country, you, you wouldn't have it. You, that you wouldn't be born and bred in you. It's that spirit of rugged individualism. Our country was birthed on this spirit of rugged individualism. 
And so what we think is the most important is our personal, private, devotional life with Christ. And that is important. I'm not saying it's not. Jesus did say, when you pray, go into your inner room, your prayer closet, and pray in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's true. But there is another dimension of our devotional life that God intends to be public. Corporate prayer. Church-wide prayer. We're part of a brotherhood. We don't exist as Lone Ranger Christians. We exist as part of a church. God desires that every Christian is committed to and involved in the life of a local church and that the prayers should be commonplace when that church gathers. I think you see this in the early church. The early church was birthed out of prayer, a 10-day prayer meeting. Do you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has ascended to heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and the church gathered. They gathered in some upper room there in Jerusalem and for 10 days they spent their time Praying. Praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised that he would send the Spirit, but he says, you wait here until you receive that outpouring of the Spirit. So what do they do? They go to the third, uh, that upper room, and they pray. And they pray day after day after day, and finally on the tenth day, the Spirit came. The day of Pentecost. During that day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he preaches. 3,000 people are converted. And what does it say that those early disciples did? Verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, in the breaking of bread, in fellowship, and in prayer. And notice the first three things listed there are public devotional items. Uh, the apostles' teaching. The church was gathered to hear the apostles teach. The breaking of bread, I believe that refers to the Lord's Supper. It happened together as a church. Fellowship, well of course you have to have other Christians to fellowship with them. I believe the, the last one, prayer, it's not talking about that they went off in their prayer closets alone. It's talking about when the church gathered, the early church, they prayed. We know that because later on in the book of Acts, chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested by the Jewish leaders and they they stood them before them and they were questioning them. And Peter, bold old Peter, just says, hey, there is salvation and nobody else. For God has not given us any other name other than the name of Jesus Christ by which we must be saved. And they started talking to themselves and they said, well, we really don't have any reason we can punish them. They haven't committed a crime, so they threatened them and let them go. And so what do these early apostles, Peter and John, do as soon as they're let go? They go back to their companions, they gather the church together, and the church prays. Acts chapter 4. And when they were done praying, it says, the place where they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God with all boldness. That's what prayer did for these early Christians. And I believe that we as a church need to be committed to corporate prayer. I mean, when we gather together, whether it's in a home or whether it's here on Sunday, prayer should be part of that time together. That's why about a year and a half or two years ago, we decided to start setting apart a day of prayer once a month. It was a day to fast and then to pray as a church. And we have one coming up in a few weeks, the fourth Saturday of this month, where we're going to do that. We'll be meeting in the morning. I'm going to give a talk on the life of a man named Samuel Davies. Has anybody ever heard of this guy before? Kelly does, because I told him about it. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll be encouraged to learn about this, 
This man that God used, he lived from oh, 1723 to 1761, right at the tail end of the Great Awakening in America. So we're going to talk about his life and how God used him, and then we're going to spend some time praying, and then we're going to go out and do some kind of an outreach together as a church. Try to minister to lost people. And then we'll come back and break our fast with a meal and just enjoy fellowship. But this ought to be the, the substance of the church, the power of the church. Our Father. Not my Father. Our Father. Notice the second word there. Our Father. Now, we read those words and we're not shocked and we're not amazed, but let me tell you, when they first came out of the lips of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus must have been absolutely astounded because nobody referred to God as Father when they prayed. That was unheard of. You read your Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, and there's not a single example of an of a individual addressing God in prayer as Father. They addressed Him as Lord of heaven and earth, Sovereign God, King of the ages, some exalted title. And you know, we can learn a lot from the Old Testament Jews because they really reverenced and respected God and held Him in fear and awe and that's good and right and we ought to do the same thing. But they did not know God as Father. And here Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus addresses God as Father 176 times in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No one had done it for 4,000 years of history and Jesus comes on the scene and He teaches His disciples that who is this God? He's Father. He's Father. And I find that so exciting that the very relationship that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had with His Father, He says now to His disciples, you can have the same relationship with God that I do. He's not only my Father, He's your Father. He's our Father. I, I imagine initially that must have blown them away. How, how can it be? that this great, mighty, sovereign king could somehow relate to me as my father. But it's true. You know, my son got married in 2008 to a, a wonderful girl named Sarah. Before that time, we'd never met Sarah. One day he brought her over and introduced us to her. And when he decided that he was going to marry her, we just simply accepted her as part of the family. In fact, we love her. We would do anything for Sarah that we would do for Jonathan, our son. Now, how did she get to have this wonderful favor and privilege in our eyes? <laughs> it was simply because she married our son. And when we married Jesus Christ, God's son, all the favor of heaven becomes ours. And he relates to us in the very way he relates to his own son. We are his bride. His queenly bride. We have been brought into intimacy not only with His Son, but with His Father. So, He is our Father, and He's our Father. Hebrews 4.16 teaches us that we have confidence to enter the throne of grace so that we might find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. There's an approachableness to God because He is our Father. Now, notice Jesus said when we pray, we are to pray, Our Father. He didn't say, Dear Michael, the archangel, or Dear Gabriel. We're not to pray to angels. Neither are we to pray to the Virgin Mary, or to Joseph, 
or to St. Christopher or to any other saint. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator also between God and men and it's not a human being. It's the man Christ Jesus. So here's the biblical model of prayer. We pray to God in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he is our father. He's our father. We address him as father, not angels or men. And the, the other thing that we draw from this principle is that only a true Christian can truly pray. Only a true Christian. Because only a true Christian can really address God as Father. And you say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't everybody God's child? How many have ever heard somebody say that before? Aren't we all God's children? When you start witnessing to somebody and you say, some people are saved and going to heaven, some people are lost and going to hell, they say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Aren't we all God's children? No, we're not. We're not all God's children. Galatians 3.26 says that you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says, as many as received him, that's Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Remember our scripture, John 3.16? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There are saved and there are lost. And until you become a child of God, you can't address him in prayer as father because he's not your father. Who is your father if you're not saved? The devil is. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you are of your father the devil. I was born into this world a child of Satan. So were you. Now how does somebody become a child of God? Well, there's two ways. Regeneration and adoption. Regeneration means to be born again. Faith and repentance are sort of the birth canal. And when you exercise faith and repentance, you enter into this whole new world. You know, the baby, before he comes out, all he's used to is darkness and hearing the thud, thud, thud of his mother's heartbeat. And now he comes out and there's blinding lights everywhere and people are laughing and excited to see him. It's a whole new world he enters that's what it is to be regenerated. You're changed. You're made a new person. And my friends, if that's never happened to you, you're, you're not a Christian yet. Even though you attend church and maybe you're a moral person, Christians are those who've been born of the Spirit of God. They've experienced a new heart implant. God has taken His life, His divine life that comes from the throne in heaven and He's put it inside of you and it's like a, this gushing river of the water of life that overflows from you. Remember that happened to me when I was 19 years old. I can remember days when I, I thought, what's the matter with me? All I want to do is read my Bible. I don't like the Bible. Yes, I do. I love the Bible. What's the matter with me? I'm concerned about people that are lost. And I want to talk to them about Jesus. I've never felt that way before. I can remember driving down the road with my praise songs on my cassette player. They didn't, <laughs> we didn't have digital back then. Putting my cassette tapes in, just singing at the top of my lungs, raising one of my hands as I'm driving down the freeway. I was so in love with the Lord. What happened to me? That's not Brian Anderson. Well, it's not the Brian Anderson who was born. It's the new Brian Anderson that was regenerated as a 19-year-old. Have you experienced the life-giving spirit to make you new? So we're 
made God's children through regeneration. We're also made God's children through adoption. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Now, to be adopted, well, we, we understand that concept. We go to a child that's not our own, and we legally make him our child so that he has all the rights and privileges of every other natural-born son or daughter that we have. He becomes part of the family. He gets his share of the inheritance. He's a legal child of yours or mine. And to be adopted as God's child means that he freely embraces us, though we have no right to be in his family. We're born in the family of Satan, but he apprehends us, brings us into his kingdom, his family, and bestows on us all of the glorious privileges and the inheritance that a natural-born son like Jesus Christ possesses. But now it's distributed to his bride, his children, his adopted children. So only a true child of God, only a true Christian can really pray this prayer. Because otherwise, they'd have to say, My devil, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they'd have to pray to the, their, their true father, which is not God. So are you a child of God today? That's essential. Jesus Christ reveals the Father as the intimately familiar one, the Father of believers. But he also reveals him as the infinitely exalted one. Because he doesn't leave off saying our Father. He says our Father who is in heaven. Now that gives us a slightly different picture of this God that we pray to. Doesn't it? He's in heaven. He's exalted. Far above any of us. We can't even conceive of the majesty and the glory and the power of this great creator who has made us and sent his son to redeem us. Let me just give you some scripture to help you start thinking about God who is the infinitely exalted one. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And folks, we can't stop Him. <laughs> he does whatever He wants. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Go outside tonight when it's dark and look up and take a look at the moon and the stars and just meditate on the power of this God who spoke that. And it came into existence. We can't even wrap our head around how vast this universe is. God did that as a word. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, we have the words of Nebuchadnezzar, but these are, these are true, inspired words of the living God. He says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Have you ever tried to tell God, what are you doing? I don't like what you're doing, God. 
Well, good luck. It's not going to change a thing. God does what he wants. No one can ward off his hand. Let me read to you from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, starting in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Here are the judges, the great powerful people on the planet. He says they're meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name, and because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God not only created the universe and all the stars, he numbers every single one of them. Well, we can't do that. They're beyond number. <laughs> he gives them all a name. And because of his power, not one is missing. Not one of them shoots off into oblivion and ceases to exist. You see something of the infinite greatness of God through this. Paul says over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever, and ever. And then again in chapter 6, verse 15, he refers to him as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So we, we have a hard time really imagining the greatness of our God because in our fallenness and in our puny little minds, we can't. We cannot fully comprehend God. We never will. We will spend eternity getting to know God better and better and better. But He's infinite in His exaltation. He is transcendent. He is far above us. Much farther than we are above some cockroach or slug or snail. He's infinitely above the human race. He's not a created being. From the highest archangel to the tiniest little amoeba. We say, well, that's a, that's a huge difference. That is nothing compared to the distance between God and that highest archangel. Because God is the creator and everything else is created by him. So we have to get a conception of his transcendence and his glory and his sovereignty and his majesty. See, there's two truths that Jesus Christ is teaching his disciples here in this prayer about God that we need to really get. One the love 
and intimacy and tenderness of God as a father to the sovereignty and glory and fear of God as a sovereign king, a dread king. And we never want to polarize those two conceptions of God and say, well, I believe in this one, but I don't like that one. Or I believe in this one, I don't like that one. If you do that, you're going to get into danger. You'll find your Christian life perverted and thwarted. What you need is to bring both of those ideas, because they're both true and they're both biblical, and you need to hold them together, even in tension sometimes, when it's hard for you to keep them together. Earlier, before our time of worship, we read from Isaiah 57, but I want to read that again. It's Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, how does God describe himself? He says, I'm the high and I'm the exalted one. I live forever, my name is holy, and I dwell in a high and holy place. I'm far removed from you. In one sense, we cannot approach him when we look at him in his pure sovereignty and majesty, on a high and holy place. But this high and holy God has condescended to come down and to dwell with certain kinds of people. What kinds of people are they? Well, he describes them. Contrite. That means one who feels his shame and his guilt and confesses his iniquity and his pollution to God. He, he knows his vileness. He sees the blackness of his heart before this holy, this infinitely holy being. And he comes contritely, on bended knee, on his face before this God. God loves to dwell and come close and approach people like that. But in this verse, we're taught about God's transcendence and we're taught about God's eminence, His nearness, His closeness as a Father. He is close and approachable and near as a Father and He is awesome and omnipotent and sovereign as a King all at the same time. And I said there's two dangers First of all, there's the danger of only viewing God as transcendent, as being out there, other than us, distant. There is a danger to that. Now, I don't think that's our danger today, by and large. There might be a few churches around that they go to this extreme, but I haven't met very many of them. But this was true in previous centuries, where people viewed God as only transcendent. Martin Luther himself, the great reformer. That's why he said before he was converted that he hated God. Because his conception of God was that God took pleasure in damning and destroying sinners. He read Romans 1.17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And do you know what he thought that verse meant? Well, that's the righteousness of God in damning sinners. That's what the gospel reveals. He had not a clue that the gospel was good news to perishing sinners. He thought it was God's damning of them because of his righteous standards. And Luther did everything in his power to try to appease this sovereign king that was out there. He tried to approach him. He fasted and he prayed and he made pilgrimages 
to Rome and he went up this, it's said of him that he went up the steps of St. Peter's Cathedral on his knees up and down trying to earn God's favor and he never could. He never could. He was just as far away from God when he was done as when he started. And then the Holy Spirit caused that verse to explode on his consciousness again with brand new meaning. And he saw it. He saw the glory of the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It has nothing to do with fasting and praying and pilgrimages. It has to do with faith. And he saw that the righteousness of God was not God's righteousness to damn him, but the gift of righteousness to save him. That he had no righteousness of his own to recommend him to God. And that God, out of his sheer mercy and grace, gave the gift to those who believe upon his Son. And Luther says that he felt like he entered through the gates of paradise and was born again at that very moment. He had made the mistake of only viewing God in his transcendence, and he did not understand God as a father. Now, if a church goes to that extreme today, they will tend to be very formal in their worship of God because they see him as distant. Very formal, the worship will be formal. The dress will be formal. Usually the relationships within a church like that will be kind of stilted and cold and distant because since God is that way, they tend to view and treat others that way as well. Those are all the dangers of only seeing God as transcendent. But you know, there is a wonderful positive of seeing God as transcendent and that is that you have the fear of God in your life. And I think this is a quality that has almost all but left the American church today. Go out on the street and take a poll of people. Do you fear God? Well, of course not. <laughs> Why should I fear God? He's my buddy. He's my big teddy bear that I cuddle up to. He's the, you know, the, the big buddy up in the sky. That's how people in our day view God because we have so overemphasized the love of God that we don't understand this transcendent quality of God. Nobody is shaking before this holy God knowing that they are condemned and on their way to an eternal burning in hell. No one's like that. And we need some of this transcendent preaching of God to come back into the church because we've lost it. We Go back and read the people two or three hundred years ago. They understood this. They got it. But we don't understand anything about it anymore because we have such uh, a watered-down thin view of Christianity in the American church today. Now, go to other places in the world and you'll see, they have the correct biblical view of God. They see Him in His transcendence. But here in America, it's been so compromised. So that's the danger of only viewing God as transcendent. Let me just add this little side note. If I were to go into the White House and walk into the Oval Office and say, there's Barack Obama sitting on his, his uh, chair there in his office, and I said, Hey, dude, what's going on? I'd probably have a bunch of armed guards escorting me out and taking me to jail real quick, right? But if Barack's daughter came into the White House, entered the Oval Office, and say, Hey, Daddy, what you doing today? He'd say, Hey, sweetheart, come and sit on my knee. Let's have a talk. Now, why couldn't I do that? <laughs> I wouldn't want to, but <laughs> why, why couldn't I get an audience with the president? Because I'm not kin. I'm not his son or his daughter. You see, there are special privileges that are given. There's intimacy. There's approachability that comes with being family. Now, what's the danger of only viewing God as familiar and intimate? 
that's only seeing him as father, and we don't see him as this dread, sovereign, majestic, holy, other king. We just see him as father. Well, that's the way we view God today in America, by and large. The danger is that we have lost this transcendent view that purifies the life. We're told to perfect fear, holiness in the fear of God. Well, if we don't have any fear of God, how are we going to perfect holiness? We take the worship of God very lightly. We become ultra casual about everything. And it comes across in our churches. I mean, here I am wearing jeans to church. Casual worship. Now, I don't think your dress matters all that much. I really think it stems from your heart. But where are our hearts when it comes to God? If we've only seen God as this snuggly teddy bear or, you know, the, the big man upstairs or all these crazy things we refer to God as, just this irreverent, ultra-casual approach to God, we've lost something very, very precious in the Christian life. But we've gained something precious too. And what we have gained is a sense of God's tenderness and closeness and intimacy and love and graciousness and kindness. All of those things are the, 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 they're, the, um, they're the outflowing of a father to his child, right? All of those things. At least a good father for his child. He loves his son. He's tender towards him. He brings him close. He showers affection upon him. And we need to know that God is that kind of a God as well. He is. He's a father to those who love him and those who have embraced him. And so the danger of viewing God as only familiar and intimate is that we become too casual and we become irreverent. It's kind of like going to a San Francisco Giants ball game. When you do that, anything goes, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if... if uh, it's the bottom of the ninth, and there's two outs, and your team is up, and you can win the game. It doesn't matter if you get up and go to the bathroom at that particular time. No one's going to say, hey, what are you doing? Get back here and sit down. You can get up, and you can go get a hot dog. You can take a nap if you want. You can trim your toenails. I mean, you can do anything you want at a ball game. And that's how we treat church and the worship of God. It's like anything goes. Too casual. We come in late. We come in when, you know, the service is half over. It doesn't bother us a bit that we're treating God in an irreverent way. We talk to each other while we should be focusing on God. We get up and use the bathroom in the middle of worship or the middle of the sermon, or we go over and get some coffee when we're supposed to be singing. This, my brothers and sisters, we become too casual about the worship of God. We need to see Him as a great, great, great King who has condescended to allow us the privilege of coming and sitting on his knee and talking with him about the things that trouble us and make us afraid. Our, our dreams and our shattered dreams and our sin that's plaguing us and the sin that's tearing our life up. And he, he just invites us to come and talk to him in intimacy. So brothers and sisters, we need both aspects of God. Another thing that will happen if we only see God as Father is we'll start taking our view of sin too lightly. It's not going to really bother us too much 
if we go on in a particular sin. Because, after all, He's my Father. He loves me. He'll forgive me. Isn't that what God's for? To forgive you? He'll accept me. And we presume upon the grace of God. Hear me out here. I believe God has saved me. But, if I were to go and leave my wife and shack up with another woman, you have every right to think that I was never converted. Sin is not a little trifle in the Christian life. We need to take sin seriously. You know what Scripture says about sin in Romans 8.13? If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. I believe he's talking about everlasting life. Everlasting life, do you know how you can know if you have it? You're putting to death the deeds of the body in your life. The sinful deeds, whether it's gluttony or whether it's a poor use of, of drugs. Maybe it's pharmaceuticals that you get, but you get hooked on them. Maybe it's laziness or sloth. What are the deeds of the body that are, are sinful and corrupt before God? If you are one that knows God, you're struggling, you're fighting, you're seeking to put those things to death. You're not content with it. You're, you're not content just to say, okay, Lord, well, I guess you're just going to have to accept me the way I am because you made me this way, and after all, nothing I can do about it. No! The Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Brothers and sisters, make today a new starting point. If you become too complacent about sin, see God as transcendent, because He is. See Him in, in His dread majesty, His sovereign authority over you. Don't fear the one who can merely kill your body. But fear the one who's able to take your body and your soul and cast you into hell for all eternity. Fear him, brothers and sisters. If we know only God as our buddy, we're not going to take sin seriously. And so it's important that we bring these two aspects that are both true together and we pray to this God. Because he's our father, we're welcome. We have assurance of his love. We have His wonderful standing and grace, but because He is our transcendent, sovereign King, we don't presume upon His grace. We don't rush nonchalant and irreverent into His presence, but we treat Him with the holiness and the reverence that He deserves. Now, I've been talking to saints today, but I need to talk to those here, who, who may still be lost. You may not be saved. You may not be a son or a daughter of God. What does the Bible say about prayer to a person like that? I'm going to read to you from the book of Proverbs. I'll just quote it here. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Do you see what's being contrasted and compared? The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright, prayer is synonymous with sacrifice. He contrasts the wicked and the upright 
And he contrasts the sacrifice and prayer. I believe what he's saying there is that the prayer, which is like a sacrifice of the wicked, is an abomination to the Lord. And do you know what that word abomination means? It means something that is hated. I don't know if you realize this, but God hates certain things. It's something that's detestable. Is there anything in your life that you say, man, I just detest that thing? I detest spinach. I just hate it, you know. God feels this way about the prayers of wicked people. You see that? Prayers of wicked people. They think they're being accepted with God because they pray. And you talk, you go out and just start witnessing to people, and they'll tell you that they pray. Every night before I go to sleep, I pray a certain little prayer. Do you think God is impressed with that? It's an abomination. Because it, it comes from a wicked, corrupt heart. And until you have that wicked, corrupt heart replaced with a new heart, God can't accept your prayers. And so if you're lost today, you need a new heart. You need a new nature. You need God the Holy Spirit to do something within you that you can't do. That's just a flat-out truth. With man, it's impossible to achieve salvation. You need a miracle. You are spiritually dead and you need spiritual life. And a corpse has no capacity to raise itself up to life. You need God to breathe His life into your soul. And if you're not sure that you're saved, become desperate and start crying out to God to give you life, to change that old heart, to make you a new person. He's able. In fact, He loves to do this. No one should despair. No one here should go away despairing, saying, it's, I, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. God loves to save sinners, especially people who know that they're lost and saved. Do you know that? Cry to Him. Cry to Him to have mercy upon your soul. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray for this congregation of saints that you love so, so supremely. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, those of us that you have worked grace in and given us life, that, that we would not be irreverent in your presence. That we would not be flippant and just too casual. We would take the worship of our God and the sin in our life seriously. And I also pray, Lord, that we would enjoy that nearness and sense of fatherhood. That we would enjoy that, Lord. We're so thankful that you are approachable. That you draw near to dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Lord, for that one or two or however many that are here today that have been attending church but have never been born again, would you grant life? Glorify your great name, Lord, by giving dead sinners life, changing them, Lord, renewing them on the inside that you might receive glory. In Jesus' name, amen.